Hello humans, friends. Welcome or welcome back to Mind Medicine. I'm Tommy Moore, host of this podcast, and it's my job to inspect and dissect some of the leading psychologists, psychiatrists, neuroscientists, and leaders in psychedelic-assisted therapies from around the world to shine a light on breakthrough therapies for mental illness. Awareness, education, and better therapeutic solutions are urgently required if we're to have any chance of alleviating the suffering of individuals and the burden of mental health on society. Mind Medicine Australia is a registered charity committed to helping alleviate the suffering caused by mental illness within Australia through expanding the treatment options available to medical practitioners and their patients. Mind Medicine Australia is providing educational material and events, therapist training, ethical and legal guidelines, and now developing an Asia-Pacific Centre for Emerging Mental Health Therapies and also supporting clinical research. At Mind Medicine Australia, we believe that everyone should have access to the safest and most effective care. We're a small organisation doing big things and we need your support. Alright, let's do this. Dr. Prash Puspanathan, aka Dr. Prash P, has quite an interesting history in his pathway into the field of psychiatry. It was actually his initial interest in psychedelic medicine that prompted his curiosity into the world of the mind, leading him to study psychiatry so as to further his interest in the realm of psychedelic medicine and its therapeutic potential. Prash has been a medical doctor at the Alfred Hospital, where he has most recently held the position of neuropsychiatry fellow. He has been an ongoing advocate for medicine-assisted therapies and has spoken at events throughout Australia and at conferences worldwide. He started and managed Psychonauts Onimus, Australia's first monthly gathering of multidisciplinary professionals to discuss current research in the field of psychedelics. He's also the CEO of Australia's first dedicated cryptocurrency brokerage, Caleb and & Brown. And you might be wondering, like I was, what has cryptocurrency have anything to do with neuropsychiatry and psychedelics? Well, you're about to find out. Prash speaks about the spectrum of mental illness, as well as some of the limitations of understanding causes and diagnosing mental health, brain and mind disassociation, the rewiring effects and new pathways of thinking that psychedelic medicine offers, what empirical evidence we have for the psychedelic space, breaking away from the mould of using the word drug, recalling trauma through MDMA, the difficulty in using language to explain a psychedelic experience, and the importance of integration, as well as some of the risks associated with psychedelics, whether that's recreational or therapeutic, short and long-term implications, and trust me, much, much more. There are very few episodes that I can say I really look forward to listening back again and again, but this is definitely one of them. I had my notepad down for this one because there are plenty of fact bombs worth remembering here. So, whatever you're doing, whether you're driving, walking, lying on your bed, working, whatever it is, take a step back and enjoy the brilliance that is... Dr. Prash P. Dr. Prash, thanks for joining me. Afternoon. Thank you for having me. <laughs> You're very, very welcome. Now, you have quite a fascinating portfolio, all the way from neuropsychiatry to cryptocurrency. So, how is it you describe what you do? <laughs> 
yeah, it does seem to confuse people slightly. Um, the, the two may not always go hand in hand. You can almost think of them as separate streams. I do, I do run a financial services brokerage dedicated to cryptocurrency, but my, my primary passion for almost a decade now has been um, psychedelics and the use in psychedelic assisted psychotherapy. And in line with that is my training um, as a doctor uh, and in psychiatry. So they, they are in a way parallels, completely parallel streams, but in a lot of senses, they're both, if you really want to get into the nitty gritty of it, I think like to think of both cryptocurrency and psychedelics as essentially disruptive technologies um, that are set at the forefront of innovation and that seek to um, break away from our current modalities of doing things, whether that's in the mental health arena or in the arena of finance. And so in that way, I guess, disruption and sort of out of the box modalities have been something that's always fascinated me. And in that way, I guess it's not that much of a surprise that my two career paths seem so divergent. Well, I never would have thought cryptocurrency and psychedelics were going to be in the same realm, but you've certainly convinced me there. <laughs> How did you, firstly, what, what is your background in psychiatry or psychology? How did you first come into the realm of, of mental health and psychology? In a, in a rather roundabout way, I finished medical school, was convinced I was going to be a surgeon. Um, that's sort of where my, my training was initially taking me. And at some point along the way, I, that initial stage, I discovered psychedelics. So I know a lot of people, a lot of psychiatrists who have started venturing into psychedelics in psychotherapy have been psychiatrists first and then discovered the potential of psychedelics. For me, um, psychedelics are what got me into psychiatry because um, what psychedelics opened my eyes to in terms of the infinite capacity of the mind meant that I suppose, without being insulting to the surgical profession, I, I no longer really wanted to operate in the body anymore if I could have the opportunity to, and not to use the word loosely, but operate on the mind um, and to have access to explore the human mind day to day was something that was fascinating to me. And that's how I ended up in psychiatry via psychedelics and therefore i guess from the moment i started my psychiatry training the end goal or the end destination was always going to be linked to psychedelics in some way and so it is it seems yeah that's quite a fascinating way into it often it's you start off with the psychiatry or psychology or neuroscience first and then you then discover psychedelics through that as, yeah. a, as a potential healing mechanism but I'd, I guess I'd like to firstly go over the scope of mental illness in that what are some of the common social, behavioral and thought patterns associated with mental illness? Are there similarities in seemingly different mental health conditions? I guess to start answering that question, we need to perhaps break down that concept or that category of mental illness into... Rather, we need to separate the, the idea that there is one thing as mental illness. The, the reality is that there are, you know, it's obviously a very vast spectrum of what we call mental illness. Even within that, the spectrum between um, normal suffering um, and normal distress and abnormal pathology, again, it's a spectrumal distribution. 
commonly when we think of mental mental illness and that spectrum, we have conditions which we term psychotic um, on one end of the spectrum and neurotic on the other end of the spectrum. They're, they're all sort of relatively arbitrary definitions. But broadly speaking, those on the psychotic end of the spectrum are so-called because they they signify a very distinct departure from reality. Um, and those on the neurotic spectrum, perhaps not so much a distinct departure from reality, but um, are often the kind of an exaggerated sense of some of the normal features that a lot of us understand in terms of, and that's why they're called neuroticisms. Um, so obsessiveness, um, excessive worry, um, anxiety. These are all things that all of us encounter on a day-to-day -day basis and acknowledge as being part of the normal human experience. And that in an exaggerated sense or that with an intensity where it starts to impair functionality are probably what we put in place on the neurotic side of the spectrum. Once we've got that sort of broad definition in place, we can sort of, we can fit um, disorders that we can think of, um, you know, various points along that spectrum. You have conditions like PTSD, post-traumatic stress disorder, uh, which sort of, I would almost say sits neatly in the middle because it encompasses a lot of symptomatology characteristic of a neurotic spectrum of disorders, anxiety, depressed mood, excessive worry, but at times, particularly during acute exacerbations, can trend into the more psychotic spectrum with patients often suffer, often suffer extreme dissociation, for example, where they completely lose touch with reality and retreat into this completely alternate shell as a means of protecting that sort of fragile internal psyche. So while there are distinct compartments or, or differentiators between the ends of the spectrum, you do find that in a lot of conditions, even those that are typically neurotic, let's say anxiety, can display uh, features that may be suggestive of the other side of the spectrum. You know, severe anxiety, if anyone has ever experienced it, a panic attack, for example, where one starts to get so worried about something, be that in any way steeped in rationality or logic or not, to the extent that it completely disables them and makes them afunctional. If you really think about it, that's really not steeped in reality at all. And you know, you could be mistaken for place thinking of that as being somewhere more along the psychotic end of the spectrum. So I guess what I'm trying to get at in this very long-winded ramble is that while there are distinct separations that we often consider, the reality is that it, it is all a rather amorphous mass or mess and that spectrum is in no way linear um, and the, the spectrum itself could be considered in a sort of multi-dimensional tangle where it all becomes a rather fluid entity and therein i guess lies some of the criticism of diagnoses and talking about individual disorders because it, it sort of signifies a compartmentalization which doesn't really actualize when you consider how patients actually experience these things have i made any sense there Absolutely. No, that's a, a brilliant response. And I think that people often have this image of what neuroticism or depression or anxiety is. People miss this idea that people can carry around so much struggle and particularly men can mask their pain for so long. You can see it across all cultures and traditions and even through an evolutionary lens. Females are far better at social cohesion and developing social groups and support networks. And in retrospect, small or even large events can be blown out so far out of proportion 
regardless of gender, socioeconomic status, race, people can be so incredibly knocked off course that they take their own lives. It's frightening to see that here in Australia, suicide is the leading leading cause of death among people aged 15 to 44. This is so staggeringly common, the self-talk to get to the point where you are in so much pain that the only option appears to be taking your own life. This Mm -hmm. downward spiral that we get ourselves into, these ruminating thoughts, these repetitive thoughts that we convince ourselves that we are not worthy, that we are not loved, that our lives don't matter. What's the point? It's so exceptionally common and it disheartens me to see that we categorize those with mental illness as this unlucky group of people who just don't get the gift of normal brain chemistry because it's so far from the truth. We all face, like you said, some degree of mental difficulty and we need to go to work daily on what we're telling ourselves because if we tell ourselves that we are not worthy enough times, the neural network of negative biases become solidified and easy to access. It's like a memory. And then we begin to question, is it possible for me to manage this? Can I decrease the severity of these episodes? And people are so disempowered for the possibility of change as though we have no say in how we think and it certainly can feel like that but it's not a state that you have to accept and it's not programmed that you have to accept there are ways to reformat this and I want to open this to the potential for psychedelic medicine because from the research that I've come across these medicines are so incredibly powerful and seem to have a transdiagnostic action. What is it about psilocybin and other classical psychedelics that have this ability to reboot and rewire these damaged neural pathways that first led us to those recurrent thought patterns? Uh, perhaps the first thing we need to consider that is that when we think of psychedelics as rewiring neural pathways, Um, Yes, there is potentially an element perhaps later in the course of this actually happening on a biological level in that there being actually a rerouting of neuronal pathways within the brain and actually being able to see that, for example, in functional MRI um, imaging. But even before that actually happens, these connections, these new connections that are being made are are happening on a conscious level. Um, on a mind level. And I'll here I'll, I'll perhaps deviate into um, identifying uh, perhaps a, a slight discrepancy between brain and mind. And there's a, there's a common correlation that we often come to of brain and mind being one and the same. It's a, it's a colloquial association, um, one which really, if you think about it, there is no functional or anatomical evidence for the two being entirely entwined. There's an association between the two. We know that you know, mind links, um, mind impulses pass through the brain to exert their effect. Whether it originates there, we don't necessarily know. And similarly with psychedelics, we do know that those initial new pathways that it creates in the way, in your in your ways of thinking, for example, um, may not necessarily immediately always manifest in terms of brain connections being formed. Having said that, and to follow on, um, In the long term, we do see that happening. Um, We do have fMRI studies that demonstrate that in uh, under the psychedelic state, there is blood flow being re-diverted, redirected to different parts of the brain than used to be. Um, We do know that there's this great paper that came out called the Entropic Brain Theory, 
uh, we do know that psychedelics increase the level of entropy or chaos in the brain, which at first may sound counterintuitive and counterproductive until you acknowledge that all that chaos really means is that there's disruption. And when there's disruption, there's innovation. And when you're, when you consider that mental illness a lot of the time is a result of set patterns of thinking, set narratives that we have told ourselves and reinforced and have been reinforced by society, by family, by culture, and that we then suffer, then anything that can disrupt that allows you the potential to see things in a new light, allows the potential for new perspectives to develop, allows completely new paradigms to guide the way you shape your future. And that's just one hint of where psychedelics can sort of exert their potential. You start listing them, we'll be here for a very long time, unfortunately, but I hope that's enough for taste. <laughs> Absolutely. No, you've, you've answered that very, very well. I feel that these substances are unfortunately not understood well by the culture at large. And obviously we're still very early in the research. And of course there's been a hiatus in the research for the last number of decades. And we are slowly beginning to learn more and more about them. I guess we can look at brain imaging and reveal what is shown through MRI and what the pharmacology is on a pharmacological basis. But it's this phenomenological basis that is really profound about psychedelics. And this is how they differ from so many other different substances is that there is still so much that we don't know about consciousness. And I guess that's what started you being interested in in the field of neuropsychiatry you know we can look at the level of the brain and try and figure out what's happening and you know here's a bit of serotonin there and i guess the conventional belief is that depression is caused by low serotonin and that serotonin is the happy hormone so to reverse these illnesses all you need to do is increase this increase it but serotonin is obviously a complex neuromodulator it more tunes neural function rather than being a simple excitatory or inhibitory neurotransmitter and so as research develops we can find out more about these substances in terms of the pharmacology but what does the neuroscience currently say or brain imaging reveal about mental illness and these medicines okay um one of the first things we have to accept when we talk about empirical evidence in the understanding of mental illness is unfortunately that there isn't actually all that much um, for the most part we our understanding of depression our understanding of anxiety our understanding of schizophrenia from uh, a causal point of view is incredibly limited and that's probably why our ability to um, sort of design effective treatments for these is also incredibly limited. Uh, take depression for one. Uh, we we understand that it has that serotonergic agents exert an effect in, on them um, on depression, but we don't understand how. And that's because we don't know where depression really comes from. We don't really have effective evidence. Um, that it can be that it, that it you know that it's reflected in any particular way in neuroimaging, for example, there is no scan that you can do to demonstrate that someone is depressed or anxious or schizophrenia. 
or schizophrenic or psychotic. It's one of the big problems that psychiatrists often have, particularly when you're working with a patient who may not have the greatest amount of insight into their mental illness, which is that there is no way to prove to them that, that they may have you know, this particular illness. Um, when someone is so depressed but cannot tell cannot understand how truly depressed they are and how much of a risk they are to themselves, there is no way to actually send them, put them into a CT scanner and demonstrate that they are actually so depressed. So that you know, trying to achieve some uh, measure of empirical evidence for mental illness is still, is still faltering and stuttering. When you bring the psychedelics into it, again, we don't have, we cannot uh, achieve any sort of direct evidence on how psychedelics improve mental illness because we don't already have the prior evidence of what mental illness looks like perhaps from an imaging level what we have been able to show and there are perhaps two things that i may point out one which i have already talked about which is that fmri studies of the psychedelic state show these show this increased entropy for one which that increased entropy which obviously reflects that new pathways are being sought out. And one of the areas in which it is most clearly demonstrated is with regards to the default mode network. Now the default mode network is a collection of brain regions, which normally show very high connectivity, particularly in the resting state. Now this bit's pretty crucial. When I say the resting state, state I refer to the state when one is not involved in executive function, when one is not involved in meaningful goal-oriented activity. So you know, you're not cooking, you're not driving, you're not moving your arm in a particular direction, you're just being. And it's that resting state, that being state, where if you consider what your brain is doing at that time, seeing as it's not being asked to achieve a goal, then that is probably the closest we have to that brain's, well, the resting state and therefore a state in which, in which it demonstrates personality, a state in which the bulk of rumination, consolidation of information, processing of past memories, all of that sort of going on, all the stuff that's happening in the background when you're not actively trying to do something. And we know that the default mode network demonstrates a very high level of connectivity in this state. Now in the psychedelic state in particular, we know that the default mode network shows a complete disruption, markedly reduced blood flow to that default mode, which doesn't mean that there's reduced blood flow to the brain. It just means that there's reduced blood flow to those preset connections. And when there's reduced blood flow to the preset connection, it means that blood flow is being diverted to new areas of the brain, new connections that are being formed. And that's pretty exciting um, if it has the capacity to do that. Now, another thing that I might point out, and we're sort of talking about um, quite different substances here, the, the sort of not typical psychedelics, but um, psychedelic-esque substances like MDMA, um, which we know has extreme efficacy in post-traumatic stress disorder. In post-traumatic stress disorder, one of the reasons why PTSD is so hard to treat is that therapy, which often involves um, which is often psychotherapy, which involves one um, recounting and trying to work through that traumatic memory and process what may have happened and the ramifications of such. Naturally, and quite intuitively, you can imagine that that process in, it's in itself 
a rather traumatic one. Having to recall a traumatic memory can itself be very painful. And often there's a high degree of emotional fatigue that comes with trying to work through those memories and a high degree of emotional flooding. And often that process of therapy can, can end very prematurely because um, the patient just is not able to tolerate going through the therapy. When memories are laid down, when we're talking about these memories you're recalling, you can almost split memories into two primary components, the, the actual sort of autobiographical nature of the events, the factual memory, and then there's the emotional memory. And we all have an emotional memory that is connected to every memory that we try and recall. And it's that emotional memory, which is so indicated in that emotional flooding. In the MDMA state, we show, we see a marked reduction in blood flow to the amygdala, um, the hippocampus, which are very much associated with the emotional laying down of memory very distinctly and specifically. That reduced blood flow to these regions of the brain indicate that when you are recalling that memory, these regions of the brain will be less active. And so if you have the capacity to recall these autobiographical incidents and work through them without necessarily that level of emotional flooding, the chance of success of that therapy is going to be greatly increased um, as compared to a conventional therapy. I've just sort of highlighted sort of two facets um, in which we have some sort of imaging data as evidence. It's not sort of all inclusive. It doesn't cover the entire gamut of how these substances exert their effects. But again, hopefully it gives an, gives an example. I guess the value in primacy of in science and medical research placed on randomized controlled trials has its challenges in the psychedelic medicine space but one of the studies that really caught my attention was done at Johns Hopkins I believe it was in 2006 in Ronald Griffith's lab that mm -hmm. didn't seem to have any relation to health but the objective was to find out whether you could occasion a mystical type experience with psychedelics it struck to me because I thought, well, what is a mystical experience doing in a scientific experiment? But I leave, believe the study really opened the doors for psychedelics because they demonstrated that they can be done very safely and with a very high percentage that you could create a profound, meaningful experience. And the fact that you can induce an experience in a lab with a mushroom had me staring at the computer screen almost in disbelief. The studies surrounding these medicines are really wide ranging and looking at the more recent studies like smoking cessation, addiction, treatment resistant depression and also end of life anxiety, the transdiagnostic action of these substances is really quite remarkable. As an investigator of science, I think it's important to remain sceptical and critical to the research, but the results that are being released and scheduled to be released are impossible to ignore. What new insights or theories have caught your attention and interest in the scientific realm? Um, looking at it from a very from a purely scientific basis, and we're really considering the scientific method here. One of the criticisms that had always been leveled at psychedelic research was that the the studies, particularly the early studies in the fifties and sixties, were not conducted with much rigor. Because again, you got to remember, these were studies in the 50s and 60s. Um, none of the studies then were really conducted with that much rigor. That sample sizes were really small, and this continued on into the studies that were the early studies in the, in the 2000s. 
but again, the sample studies was was small for a multitude of reasons, particularly the cost and logistics of trying to um, run a study on what is essentially an illegal substance, and that the in sort of investor statistical quality of the reports, particularly back in the day, was not that great. Now, this this was an issue because it meant that trying to um, achieve validity with these results was difficult. And when I remember from the time I was first talking about this, I remember always being hamstrung by the fact that the sort of study results that I was calling upon to back up back up my claims were not of the greatest quality they couldn't be but that has changed and over the last five years or so i'd say we've got with um the the sample sizes have increased dramatically the follow-ups have increased dramatically we've got most studies have now got six to 12 month follow-ups and more recently have the papers out yet but a 24 month follow-up trial in the study into um, the MDMA PTSD trial, um, all of which have demonstrated excellent results. And I think that's been one of the greatest improvements that we have seen in terms of the capacity to be able to bring this into the mainstream and say these are results that you need to reckon with. The, the second would be obviously the, the, the foray of neuroimaging into these study designs, particularly the, the, the Brits um, over at Imperial College, Robin Card Harris and David Nutt, their, their labs are focused perhaps less on the clinical side of things, but very much into the neuroimaging side of things. And that's been really interesting because it has produced data which even hardcore non-clinicians, like scientists, can understand and to an extent are irrefutable because you're you're actually looking at empirical data here. So that's been uh, that's been an excellent development um, in the space. The another one perhaps worth pointing out is the use in addiction. Um, now, again, this isn't necessarily new. Um, in the 50s and 60s, there were there were studies into the use of psychedelics in addiction. Um, in fact, uh, Alcoholics Anonymous, as I think it was Bill, what's his name, Bill Waters, um, was one of the first to uh, to propose the use of psychedelics in the treatment of those with alcohol use disorder. But for a long time, we again we didn't have as many trials, but Certainly in the last five or 10 years, we've seen an, a great proliferation of studies employing psychedelic therapy in addiction, um, whether that's cocaine addiction, whether that's alcohol, heroin, um, and equivalently, the use of ibogaine, which again is not a typical psychedelic, but the use of ibogaine in not just in maintaining abstinence, but also in reversing withdrawal states. Um, and this has been remarkable for a number of reasons. One because addiction states are incredibly hard to treat and this kind of evidence is, 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 is very promising. But two, there is a certain sort of incongruity or counterintuitiveness to the idea of using a drug to treat uh, a drug addiction, um, which I love because I one of my big bugbears is breaking away from the mold of using the word drug. Um, in my mind, the word drug is, is, a, is a word which has really no no value in, in the nomenclature. Uh, it, it, any any categorization that includes caffeine, Panadol, and heroin all in the same category really is relatively meaningless. And for a long time, I've tried to argue the point that psychedelics, by virtue of having no addiction potential, no overdose potential, and having such a low 
what we call uh, toxicity potential really don't fit into that categorization and shouldn't be called drugs apart from purely the fact that they were made illegal and uh, back in the 50s and 60s and therefore lumped into that same category and because they are used recreationally these studies looking into their use in addiction has been great to sort of validate that claim that we need a separation within the categorization some sort of evidence that if anything points to the fact that psychedelics should be considered differently and not lumped into the same category and therefore you know sort of lose any value in terms of expression of the, the, the true self of what the substance can do so again yeah that's three of my three of my little takeaways on that point brilliant and yeah these are obviously not thought to be addictive drugs and the way in which we categorize drugs really does need to shift i mean you could go and do some exercise and that can be categorized as a drug you could do some breath work and that's also a drug drugs is just an altered state of consciousness but there are multiple ways of inducing altered states that don't involve any pill or plant or anything like that so I agree with you. It's important that we are desensitizing to the word drugs. I guess the skeptics that, that are looking at this and saying, well, why are you treating drugs with drug addiction? But like you're saying, their toxicity profile, particularly psilocybin, has a huge therapeutic index. There are many medicines that have a much tighter therapeutic index. That is how much leeway there is for dangers of having too much. But of course, with all drugs, there is some risk involved, no, no matter what it is, I suppose. I mean, in terms of mortality risk, there's no risk to your physiology, as, as far as we know, for, for classical psychedelics. But is there any behavioural risk or psychological vulnerability? How much do we know about the long-term mental health consequences of these substances? Um, without question, there is. Without question. Uh, I'll split that into a sort of short-term versus long-term answer. In the short term, the psychological effects or the negative psychological effects of having a bad trip can be incredibly consequential. Uh, a bad trip is, or a difficult trip, so I prefer to think of it, is as close as one will perhaps have to a transient psychotic experience. It can be absolutely terrifying. Having said that, that is often where a lot of the learning happens. Uh, a bad trip comes entirely from within. You know, I often say the mushroom has no thought content. Um, the mushroom is purely a portal. That thought content came entirely from within you. And if that thought content came from within you, then it's always there, emerging at some point that you don't realize it to blindside you in an idle Tuesday. Perhaps that's the panic attack. That's where it actually comes from. Psychedelics then offer you the opportunity to dig down into the dungeons of your castle and discover the monsters that are lying beneath. But if you venture down there without a guide, if you continue the analogy, if you venture down there without a guide, without a torchlight, unprepared, afraid of the dark, then the chances of things going wrong when you meet those monsters are very, very high which is why so much of designing the psychedelic experience is dependent on, you know, this is a term that's been used by psychonauts for, for, for decades, um, set and setting, as defined by Albert Hoffman. Set being your mindset, you know, where your headspace, where your head is at going into the experience, and setting being your environment, your physical setting, are you hot, are you cold, do you feel safe, are you with people you trust? Um, 
and if you can control for set and setting uh, carefully, then the chance of having a difficult trip, a negative experience, is incredibly slim. The, the risk is, though, that often that doesn't happen, particularly in the recreational setting in which psychedelics are taken. They're often taken reckless abandon. There's very little thought, perhaps, that may be put into that set and setting. And so the chance of having a negative trip are incredibly high. But in the in a psychotherapeutic, on a therapeutic sense of utilizing psychedelics, um, the, the set and setting are very tightly controlled for. Um, the incidence of negative experiences are incredibly small incredibly small and we need to think of them as completely different modalities of engaging with the same substance in the same way as that there's a huge difference between injecting heroin on a side street um, and being prescribed morphine by your doctor for pain that's the sort of analogy in which we need to think of these things as being just because it's the same substance which in effect morphine and heroin really are um, it doesn't mean they're going to have the same safety profile that's entirely modulated by your set and setting. Now, the more long-term answer in terms of is are there long-term ramifications of psychedelic use? Now, unfortunately, the answer is going to be no. Perhaps if research wasn't completely shut down in 1970 after Nixon signed the Controlled Substances Act, then maybe we might have more longitudinal research. But because that momentum was completely lost, we really don't have that sort of long-term efficacy data that we wish we could we could rely on. Um, you know, to an extent, we don't have that for a lot of other medications either. But we don't really ask the questions with the same rigor there. What I can point out, perhaps, is that firstly, most a lot of psych, a lot of the psychedelics that we that we think about are present um, inherently in nature. Uh, mushrooms grow in the ground. And um, you know, without being without being too flippant about the gifts that nature give us, knowing that you know poisonous substances do grow in the ground as well, the fact that from an evolutionary perspective that these substances are still around and prevalent in so many different forms in, in the cacti in 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 Mexico or in um, the Amazon in South America on the back of a frog or in the mushroom growing by the garden path on the way to your letterbox, they they're sort of everywhere, and they are everywhere to an extent, because if you look in history, if you look in the scriptures, if you look through philosophical texts, cultures have engaged with psychedelic substances throughout history. They've been used in religious sacrament for you know, as long as there has been religious sacrament. And again, this isn't empirical safety data. And we've, again, we won't have that for a very long time. But the fact that multiple civilizations have engaged with these substances uh, towards a productive outcome for centuries should lead us to perhaps think that, you know, maybe there is some value into think into into backing away from our unvalidated sense of caution. Definitely, and all the traditions and cultures engaged in some kind of psychedelic ritual or tradition. I think the Western culture is one of, or if not the only culture that has not actively participated in it. And dating back thousands and thousands of years, it is possible that these psychedelic substances actually brought about religion and spirituality. And it's really fascinating how such plants and fungi can have developed the chemistry that comes into us and teaches us all of these profound things and 
you were talking about set and setting in terms of guiding and facilitating paradigm shifting changes in in mental patterns but i guess what is also important is what happens after that session uh, the integration as as they call it and i'm interested to know is there a plausible explanation that these compounds have these long-term reorganizing effects the half-life of these substances is certainly not weeks or months long why do people have persistently more empathy a year later hmm. yeah it's something that surprises a lot of people the psychedelic therapy is almost surgical in its operation you know unlike conventional therapy which which depends on ongoing therapy to exert that if to maintain that effect or requires months or years to produce any sort of you know irreversible change um, psychedelic therapy tends to be you know, a single session or a handful of sessions and still have ongoing effect months, if not years, if not, um, you know, if not, if not potentially even irreversible change. And the, the, the crucial difference, I guess we need to understand is that it is psychedelics exert their effect, not via the biological effect, not by the pharmacological effect of this substance on the brain. It's not like taking a Panadol, which attacks just the neuroreceptor and then acts on the pain receptor and your pain goes away. That isn't at all how they work. It's psychedelic assisted psychotherapy. What I'm trying to get at is that the psychedelic state and the transcendental experiences that that produces it is the learning that comes from those transcendental experiences. It's the paradigm shifts. It's the perspective change that comes from those experiences, which produces an effect that tends to be far more long, long-standing. In a way, it is, you know, it's the sense of you not being able to unsee what you have now seen. And Elders Huxley speaks of it as the doors of perception. Again, it's purely a theory, but that idea that we all have these perceptual filters that modulate the way we see the world and the way we perceive and understand reality. And that when you crack open those doors of perception and you see something that fits outside within the narrative which you have always believed, then you can't really unsee that narrative. And so that's perhaps one you know, idea of how it maintains its effect. You did bring up integration, which I think we need to address. Um, psychedelic therapy is nothing without the integration. Integration is often, you know, after the actual psychedelic therapy session, it, there's usually six, anyway, from six to 10 sessions of integration, which is one-on-one -on -one sessions with the psychotherapist, with no psychedelic agent used, but it is a one-on-one -on -one session to work through the lessons gleaned from the initial psychedelic experience and integrate them into your life. Um, I like to think that any experience, um, any experience that is experienced um, in the present uh, will be left behind in the past until, unless you make a concerted effort to integrate that into your future. And that I would say is where the process of integration is, is so necessary to drill down these lessons such that they aren't just forgotten, such that it isn't just this fabulous mystical experience, but rather it is something that you can take and extract tangible lessons from. Often people who are engaging in psychedelics who are not part of a, a psychotherapy program often just categorize it as, you know, this crazy psychedelic experience that they had and just leave it behind as, as though it was just another drug experience. Mm -hmm. um, 
And in terms of integration as to what happens after, many people find it difficult to actually explain in language what they have experienced. But what is also very interesting is the combination of traditional meditation practice with the use of psychedelics. And I find that that holds quite a lot of promise for the positive development of consciousness. Many patients report that their meditation practice is very different after they've engaged in these psychedelic assisted therapies. They report that psilocybin renewed it and it made it more lively again or even lively for the first time. But such experiences are not a guarantee of long-lasting change. However, the crucial part is, of course, integrating your findings or learnings into your everyday life. That is the challenge. I really think meditation can help to see the blind spots that are almost always self-imposed. What are your thoughts on the combined effects of psychedelics and mindful practice? Um, yes, trying to explain the psychedelic experience in words is uh, often a pointless exercise. It's a pointless exercise because language is a really blunt tool and we're, we're limited by our cognitive state and so much that happens within the psychedelic experience is completely outside of that cognitive state. The only time where I have appreciated a similar transcendence, um, and often in literature, it is often, you know, it's often written about and spoken about that um, there's a, a, similar, a similarity or a commonality in experience and understanding and learning um, often comes from that meditative state, that ability to transcend into altered states of consciousness. Um, and therefore, the, the synergy, you would assume, is, is obvious. And I see very good reason why it should be. My, my personal thought is that combining the two is, well, to some extent, easier said than done. Um, meditation takes work, a lot of work. And you know, one of the accusations that have often been leveled against psychedelic therapy is that it's a shortcut. Um, that same level of understanding or learning that it could be achieved by really intense meditation. But not everyone's going to become a yogi and meditate for 20 years on the top of a mountain to reach this level of, of enlightenment. And yes, perhaps it is an element of a shortcut. It isn't a shortcut to sustain that understanding and learning. Um, that still does require work. But equivalently, that work can be can be maintained and continued further by utilizing another modality, which also accesses sort of similar realms of altered states of consciousness, which is where meditation comes in. I'm working on a paper at the moment, which is looking at um, psychedelic therapy in addiction and meditation um, in addiction. So the, the, there are a couple of studies that have explored the use of meditation, particularly transcendental meditation in addiction, and sort of looking at the commonalities in both the results as well as the psychobehavioral outcomes and subjective reports um, that are, that are, be, that are um, sort of described in, in both these two um, parallel streams of, of clinical trials. And the commonalities are, are distinct. Um, and I'm still you know, trying to put that together together with my research partner into a into a cohesive type of hypothesis but you know i'll let you know when i get there <laughs> yep I'm, I'm all is for that one it's certainly interesting 
I mean, coming back to brain scans again, as, as far as the empirical evidence goes for meditation and the psychedelic experience, like you were saying moment of a few a bit before was uh, about this default mode network in that there is a, a muting or a disruption in, in the default mode we- network during a psychedelic session and the same is of long-term meditators there are certainly trials or, or research that looks into brain scans of long-term meditators and they do find similar regions of the brain that are being turned off and I guess the, the DMN or the default mode network is kind of the seat of the ego or the self as far as we can say that it is in, in terms of brain imaging. But it's certainly interesting that the long-term effects is, I guess, that realisation is that you are so much more than just this self. A lot of mental illness comes from self-talk the autobiographical self and and the stories that we tell ourselves, And we often are putting ourselves in this position where it's us and and the world and that there's this this self that's experiencing the world and that the world is out there and we're experiencing that world. But I guess when you get into meditation or understand what a a psychedelic experience is, is like is very much similar in terms of brain scans of that of long-term meditators. So it really is interesting as how these two modalities are both diminishing activity in the default mode network. Early psychedelic research explored two treatment paradigms, the psycholytic and psychedelic model. So we've certainly discussed the psychedelic model in terms of high doses and mystical type spiritual experiences whereas the psycholytic model is more focused on the administration of low doses of psychedelics across multiple sessions and it's certainly becoming popular in silicon valley and around the world in terms of micro dosing now there seems to be possible clinical or psychiatric potential for microdosing or the psycholytic model potentially for alzheimer's dementia or are there any others that that you're aware of that are looking at this i would i would separate microdosing and psycholytic therapy for for one main reason yeah psycholytic therapy is the use of much smaller doses um of of the of the psychedelic substance and taking someone through a therapy session um, an actively engaged therapy session while they're under the influence of that substance. The idea being that, again, you can crack open those doors of perception slightly, you decrease the level of inhibition, you increase their, their range of capacity to explore alternative n- narratives. And that's where psycholytic therapy was explored a lot in the 50s and 60s. Um, in current day, you're not seeing much of it. In fact, one of the one of the few realms where you actually do it seeing being explored, and this isn't with a conventional psychedelic, but with a dissociative, um, is you see it being used in ketamine-assisted psychotherapy, um, using smaller doses, so not sort of you know fully into complete dissociation um, zone doses, but smaller doses of ketamine to engage in a psychotherapeutic encounter. That's probably one of the few examples of psycholytic therapy being used today. And one of the main reasons that is so is that because most other psychedelics have such a long, long half-life, because they 
take hours to get out of your system. The utility of using it for purely just, you know, for just psycholytic therapy, it becomes really hard for one to, to study in a trial. Um, it becomes incredibly resource intensive if you have to organize this for multiple sessions. Um, and it becomes really dis difficult for the patient as well to have to engage in that many sessions where they're effectively blocking themselves out from being functional for the rest of the day. I think there is promise in there. I think there's a lot of promise in there, but I think the uh, functionally being able to engage in this and being able to study this becomes quite complicated. Now, microdosing is quite different in that, again, the doses you're using, you can think of psycholytic therapy as being mini doses, you know, full dose, macro doses, mini doses, and then you have micro doses. In micro dosing, you're talking about something like seven to 10% of what a full trip dose would be, where it's meant to be effectively subperceptual, meant to not really feel anything. Um, and the benefit is meant to be something that you acknowledge more retrospectively. Um, often people with microdose keep a, keep a diary and can look back weeks later um, and recognize a pattern of differences. Uh, the commonly described um, positive outcomes are uh, feeling like a, being in the flow state, increasing better interpersonal relationships, reduced frustration tolerance, uh, increased cognitive output, better concentration. They're all relatively subjective reports. Now, yeah, you're right. There have been some studies looking into um, where they may have evidence in Alzheimer's. Um, it's another study looking into its use in cluster headaches and migraine headaches, which I found pretty interesting. But again, I don't think we have any conclusive evidence yet. Um, interestingly, it's an Australian researcher, Vince Polito, who is one of the more published people um, in it. And there, I know there are a couple of studies which I can't talk too much about, which but which are being planned coming out of Australia, actually, which will be quite interesting. The other thing to consider is that microdosing is hard to study from a sort of legal and logistical angle because getting approval for you know because so much of microdosing is often about optimization and not necessarily about treating pathology, and getting approval for a psychedelic trial to treat pathology is hard enough as it is, let alone trying to get approval for one that is for optimization. If you can sort of see uh, if that makes uh, intuitive sense to you. So it's going to be a hard one to study. I know it's happening a lot in the underground. Silicon Valley is all over it, sort of you know, powering half of the tech companies um, these days. I was featured in an interesting article about a year and a half ago in the Australian Financial Review called, uh, what was it called, Inside the Psychedelic Office? which sort of tabled microdosing culture, particularly in Silicon Valley. And I may have digressed here, Tommy, my apologies. I hope that was <laughs> enough of a, of a brain dump for you. <laughs> no, that's perfect. Are some people unlikely to receive any benefit or are there particular groups of people who should absolutely not consider psychedelic or psychedelic-assisted therapies? Um, first part of the question, are there people who are unlikely to receive benefit? Yes, they're... Again, it could be dose dependent, but there are people who are hypermetabolizers and therefore break down the substance very, very quickly and therefore seem to have minimal effect um, from experiencing a psychedelic. Again, I don't, this is, I don't think there's been enough um, sort of uh, highly structured evidence as to what causes this, but there are people who, who, who described absolutely no, no effect size. Um, but 
uh, apart from that, I, I can't think of a very clear category of people who don't necessarily get benefit. You can perhaps put people who have, you could include in that cognitive decline or acquired brain injuries or intellectual disabilities. And that does sound you know, immediately that there's a sort of reflex reaction to that being one unfair to stigmatizing. Um, and I, I do agree. I mean, on one hand, it's because it's hard for us to accurately know what they are experiencing. It's hard for us to sort of achieve that to tick off a particular metric of, is this safe? Is there a potential for misunderstanding? Um, is there is there actually going to be a benefit if there isn't perhaps the level of psychological mindedness um, to integrate these lessons formally into the future? So um, it's worth considering sort of put out there as a possibility. Uh, I'm not saying it is so, because again, there's no necessary evidence for it, but it is definitely in that category of, of we would definitely approach with caution and most people would not be prescribing it to um, that demographic. The other primary demographic where you'd be quite concerned is in anyone with a history of a psychotic illness. Now, um, we do know via you know, Krebs et al. 2016 was a 150,000 person respondent survey of people who've taken psychedelics. There was another similarly sized um, study probably two years ago in 2018, both of which identified that psychedelics have no statistically significant increase in adverse mental health outcomes. However, what we do sort of acknowledge is that for those, and this is a similar line to the conversations one has around cannabis, um, that for those who have a predisposition to developing a psychotic illness, then psychedelics can be a trigger factor they can be an exacerbating precipitant. Um, and so with anyone with schizophrenia, um, I, would, I would go so far as to put bipolar affective disorder, uh, anyone with manic episodes in that list, although I do know there are some very brave researchers who are starting to explore the possibility um, of how psychedelics might work in that realm. But for the most part, psychotic illnesses as a broad category are going to be a no-no and certainly for a very long time. Brilliantly put. Just to close this one out, what would you say to colleagues who are sceptical about the research and argue that it's only phase two, we should wait? I mean, this is, <laughs> this is an argument I have faced multiple times, less so in the last few years, but uh, in the last two years, but in the three or four years preceding that, I, I'd speak at an international conference at least once or twice a year and routinely face criticism as such. Um, my, my answer is this. Yes, yes, there isn't enough research. And yes, some of the early studies are really small. And uh, yes, the research needs to be of greater rigor. But the answer to there's not enough research is more research. The answer to why don't we know enough is to research this more. And no one's really, no proponent in this space is asking for these substances to be given out freely on every street corner. What we're asking for is the opportunity to be able to research these thoroughly, to explore their full potential in a wide range of clinical applications, and to be able to do that safely to be able to do that within the confines and supported environments of academic um, and healthcare institutions, and to be able to do that without the 
overly stringent and overbearing restrictions that currently most most psychedelic researchers are facing because of either the regulatory standard, the the legal implications, the funding requirements, all of these all of these different restrictions which seem to be impeding on psychedelic research now. And again, to close off, I would I would say that you know that there's um particularly in psychiatry there's there are so many conditions that we term treatment resistant or treatment resistive, things like PTSD, things like addiction, which aren't necessarily treatment resistant, but we do know that the vast majority of sufferers are resistive to to treatment. Uh, How can we truly, and, and a lot of these conditions are the exact conditions, things like PTSD, things like addiction, things like end of life terminal anxiety, which have demonstrated benefit from psychedelics. Now, how can we truly call something treatment resistant? Now, how can we as medical professionals, as scientists whose patients trust us to do the research and tell them what treatments are out there and guide them along that pathway? That's a mandate of responsibility that we have, that we are granted. How can we call something treatment resistant when we know that there are possible treatments out there and yet not we're not trying to explore this further? Particularly, and this is probably a hard question that everyone who has an initial resistant response to the subject matter um, should ask themselves is, uh, is, is that resistance, is my resistance to exploring something that might make treatment resistance not treatment resistant, is my resistance coming from evidence or is it coming from stigma? Uh, is it coming from the data or is it just coming from the stories I've been told for so long? Is it coming from what I think is reality, which is particularly ironic when you consider what psychedelics look to break down? Perfect answer. And yeah, we live in a time where access to information is easier and faster than ever, but it is also increasingly more difficult for the general public to distinguish evidence-based knowledge from misinformation. In my opinion, and I'm sure I'm not alone here, but If the science is allowed to progress without the political interference that has hindered it to this point, psychedelics, with psychological support like that of psychedelic-assisted psychotherapy, will become an early option in the treatment of mental illness. But Dr. Prash, I'm certainly thrilled to have spoken with you today. You're certainly a wealth of knowledge. Thank you very much for taking the time out of your day. Thank you for the time, Tommy. Very happy to speak. Wonderful. Thank you. Cheers. Well, there you have it. If you enjoyed this episode and want to continue to support our endeavors, the best thing that you can do is leave a review on Spotify or Apple Podcasts or both. This will help expose this information to the people who are seeking it. If you're curious to learn more about psychedelic assisted therapies or related information, or would like to know a little bit more about the services, events and programs that Mind Medicine Australia offers, please head to mindmedicineaustralia.org, which is always linked in the show notes, and you'll find all the information your heart desires. And finally, the information in this episode is provided for informational purposes only and is not intended to be a substitute for the advice provided by a doctor or other healthcare professional. Patients should not use the information contained for diagnosing a health problem or disease. Patients should consult with a doctor or other qualified healthcare professional for medical advice or information about diagnosis and treatment. 
Alright, we did it. If you've come this far, thank you so, so much. I really hope you're enjoying these episodes. And if there is something that you're curious about or have a question relating to mind medicine, you're more than welcome to send me an email. My email is tommy at mindmedicineaustralia.org and I'll see you here for the next one. Until then, keep well. Invest in yourself. Bye.